spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 174th Annual Subliminal Obsession Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory. Bullshit, my name is Cody, I'm my pal Phil, how are you? Doing good, buddy, how about yourself? Uh, not doing too bad, um, can I tell you something, I want to know if you think this is eye roll or a cringe statement that I have heard, so uh, there's there's a new horror movie, I haven't seen it yet, it's called Smile, have you seen previews or anything? Yes, I have, I've seen previews for it. So someone told me today that I don't know if this is a tagline for the movie or like people are just saying this, but apparently if you have any form of mental illness, you should not watch the movie because it'll be detrimental to your health. And um, it just reminded me of like, uh, what was it? Like paranormal activity. What was the thing? Like don't watch this or you'll be haunted by a demon or some shit like that. Or if you're like afraid of the dark or if you're afraid of... Yeah, if you have night, if you're prone to nightmares and shit like that, they try to always like hype it up as if like this movie will, you know, this is the scariest, most, you know, horrible movie you'll ever see. You know, kind of like the whole like pregnant women shouldn't ride this roller coaster. It's so, you know, kind of like that shit. Do pregnant women usually ride roller coasters, Phil? I don't know if they do or not, (laughs) but there's always a sign saying not to ride it. So, (laughs) you know, that's going to be a good one if it says. Pregnant women and old people should not ride this ride. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good one. I think I've lost my swagger. I just, I can't, I don't think I can ride uh, the big rides anymore. Oh, I know I can. Yeah, you're That'll in, never leave me. Any of them, you're, you're good to go. Yeah. I'm just like the, uh, God, what was that fucking movie with the four old dudes who go up into space? Armageddon. There was... No, not Armageddon. There was uh, Space Cowboys. That's the ah. movie. There was the one old guy who was an engineer. Basically, his job was to design roller coasters, and he would have to ride them in order to see like what's wrong. He would like take notes while he's riding on the roller coasters. I'll be like <laughs> that dude. You're that you you're that extreme. No, I'm not that extreme. I just like them. I don't know. <laughs> When's the last time you went to a theme park? Oh goddamn! Probably, probably honestly. Valley Fair, the last time I rode, like, the really big ones. Um, maybe some other ones, too. I just can't remember them. But the last time, like, I, I've been to, you know, parks where they had, like, regular rides, not really, like, the big roller coasters since then. But I would say Valley Fair was probably the last time. There was the one, the Nutcrutcher one, that was uh, <laughs> shaped like a snake. Yeah. That one. Yep. I think I that rode one. that with you. Yeah, it rattles on the back end and it fucking crushes your testicles. Yeah, that that one. Uh, that one was that one was awesome, except for that that part. That was terrible. That uh, that just reminded me of something. So I drove or I passed by Valley Fair not that long ago, and it's it's starting to get that like kind of old rundown look a little bit. Yeah, and that reminded me. 
Have you seen the videos coming out of China recently? Which ones? So, so they're going through that really bad drought, right? And yeah. all the, you know, when you go through a drought, the trees and stuff die, you know, whatever. So there's, yes. I saw one video, a, I'm assuming a city worker was stapling fake leaves onto a tree <laughs> to make it look like it was fine. And then today I saw a guy painting a fucking dying evergreen tree so it was green again. Yeah, kind of like from what you, you know, like history and kind of like the communist Chinese government, that's so like just them painting yeah. trees to make them look like they're not dead anymore, you know, spray painting the grass green so that you don't see it's like basically just brown and dead. That right. kind of shit. Like, I mean, all they got to do is take when I was in Seattle um, many years ago, I've never seen so much dead plant life where it's not supposed to be dead in my life. Really? In Seattle? Yeah. the gra I've never seen grass where it would look like a normal lawn with grass in it, except for it was all brown. Oh, okay. I would say the worst place I've been for that wasn't here. It's actually in New Mexico. The entire year that I lived in Clovis, New Mexico, I never saw one green blade of grass <laughs> in that entire town. It's all just... it. Honestly, people's lawns, they don't really take care of them there either because they're all pretty white trash. But everyone's lawns kind of looked like like a, you know, mismanaged fucking small wheat patch, basically. Just like, you know, almost grass coming almost up to your knees in some parts and all of it just like either golden or brown. Yeah. You know, it's funny if the city I live in now, if over the summer, if they didn't constantly be running the sprinklers... The shit would have been dead everywhere. Like there's, you can see the little patches where the sprinklers don't hit. That's dead. And then there's like colorful grass all around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't I, I assume Phoenix uses a lot of sprinklers, huh? Oh yeah. Well, it's all, the shitty thing is it's all gray water. So it's all water that was sent to the, you know, the recycling water plant that comes out of like the sinks and showers. So it all stinks. <laughs> you get this like soapy smell. The bad thing too is in my apartment complex, there's a little fountain about three doors down from where my apartment is that uses gray water. So basically it's spraying gray water up into the air. So it just like whenever they turn that sprinkler on, it stinks outside. I yeah. hate it. I know. I know that exact smell because the, when I used to wash cars, that was the stench that was constantly oh, yeah. coming out of the fucking pressure washer. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, whenever you wash your car, it stinks like that too. So it makes your car stink a little like gray water <laughs> after you're supposed to be like washing it pretty much. I'm guessing you don't recommend drinking it. Oh God. No, you, you shouldn't. If you, Oh, anyone who lives here knows if you ever visit like Phoenix, Tempe, like anywhere in the Valley, do not touch the sink water. That's only for washing your dishes. Everyone buys either bottled water or has like filtration system, some kind of filtration for their water. No wow. one drinks the water out of the sink. You know, I mean, I don't think the water I live is necessarily poisonous, but um, it's extremely hard. But luckily, whoever lived here before installed like one of those. Um, I don't even know what it's like a water purifier. It has these two canisters. They have to like change. I think it's like charcoal or something in it. Charcoal. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I would assume the water out of that's clean, but I don't really know. Yeah, so we, one of the things that I actually tried was using, it's the zero water system. And apparently you're supposed to get like, you know, 30 to 50 gallons if you live in a place with normal water. The one that I was using would be like eight gallons and then your water would start tasting lemony because that's that's kind of the sign that you need to start changing your filter out. So yeah, it's the water here just destroys those filters. Ooh, Well, I mean, technically it's a place that doesn't have a lot of water. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, and the water it does have is like full of minerals. That's pretty much the reason why. Ah, because it's all yeah, it's all shitty water. Well, um, speaking of shitty areas, are you are you ready yeah. for this <laughs> week's episode? Yeah, I actually read down a little bit to see what you were talking about, and that's a very good transition. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> you'll know. Yeah. On this week's installment of Subliminal Deception, we will be diving into one of the most notorious mass murder cases in all of U.S. history. Additionally, it is renowned because it still, to this day, remains completely unsolved. Now, while most of the more gruesome murders in the Midwest are reserved for Wisconsin, this particular murder takes place in Phil and I's home state of Iowa and has became known as the Valeska Axe Murders. Now, I'm going to assume you've probably heard of this. I well, I know from previous episodes and from Bumblebutt that basically 19th century, like early 20th century murders were pretty much all axe murders. But no, I have never heard of this particular uh, this case. Really? Definitely the biggest probably murder case in Iowa's history, I would say. Um, Yeah, the the axe murders, like you mentioned, very big in the earliest early 20th century. Uh, I was thinking about when I was doing this, I'm like, one day we have to do the New Orleans axe, man, because that's obviously a very notorious case. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I really think that it has something to do with a lot of people think like, oh, you know, guns must be the biggest thing used to like kill people. It's actually what's on hand, you know, like a thousand years ago, it was knives and swords. Five thousand years ago, big fucking rock. You know what I mean? Like, it's just whatever's on hand to kill people. That's going to be the biggest murder weapon. Back then, everyone had axes. Right. To chop wood. Right. You know, it's funny. The so last night I finally finished the the uh, hardcore history about the Japanese. Right. Yes. By far the most gruesome shit I've ever heard, by the way. And and he talks about basically they would train the soldiers and civilians to use fucking wooden sticks and a gun like (laughs) just using any weapon available oh yeah it was well definitely it's the japanese military you know pre-war they were training up their people but definitely while they were at war you know mainland china kind of like southeast asia i mean it was super gruesome i'm just competitions in who could execute the most you know civilians or POWs, um, beheadings, all of that stuff, stabbings, you know, saving bullets and just, you know, gutting people with their bayonets. And yeah, it was pretty fucking terrible. Yeah. Anybody, yeah, anybody, like, anything, anybody on here who is really into macabre stuff or thinks they've heard the worst shit, like 
listen to episode five and six of that. Oh my God. It is that one about the guy looking for his mom after Hiroshima and he's just like digging through skulls all day. I was like, yeah. whoa, holy shit. Yeah, that would be hardcore history, Supernova in the East. Yeah. That series that he's talking about. I got one quick gripe for here. We continue. So on all his episodes, he literally says, if you want to listen to my old episodes, it's a dollar an episode. Inflation must have got him too, because now they're $3 an episode. (laughs) Shit. It's getting everyone, man. I lucked out and uh, I saw him on Rogan when all of his episodes were still free. So I binged. Uh, every day I binged and listened to the whole thing, so I'm good, but I yeah, really, that's, I saw the, uh, Russian versus Germans one. I, I would love to listen to that one. Yeah. There's, uh, some really good ones. The world war one, uh, basically countdown to Armageddon. I think it's called, yeah. that was the really good one about world one and the lead up and the fallout, everything. I did. I did manage to catch that one before I went off. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, continuing on here, the city of Valeska is located in Montgomery County, which is in the very far southwest corner of Iowa. Currently, it has a population of roughly 1,132 people, which is from the 2020 census, which actually is quite a bit down from when the murders actually happened in 1912. And at that point, they had a population of over 2,000. So typical Iowa small town, uh, slowly dying and whittling away. Have you ever been to this sector of Iowa before? I've been, I've been to the like northwest, but I've never been to the southwest. So um, I, I will say that from what I've heard, it's if you go down south below Des Moines, it's pretty much Missouri. Just like any, any it's just like going north is pretty much Minnesota. Well, know? I guess from here, Valeska, if you were to go there, Omaha's an hour away. So that's kind of like their, mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming, city they would go to to get stuff. Kind of like we went to Rochester when <laughs> we needed yeah. stuff. Yep. When we, ever, when we needed to go to fucking, uh, what was it, Menards or, uh, you know, Shopco or whatever, we went to Rochester. Rochester. Now, yeah. I will I will say though, you said there is right now 1132 people living there. That means that there are 1132 people in that town thinking about moving because <laughs> everyone in a small town like that one is plotting their escape. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately the uh youth retention in small towns is not very good simply I think because there's no jobs, honestly. Oh, definitely. The sad thing, too, is it's like one of those medieval paintings of hell where there's one person who's just about to escape hell. But then all of the other, you know, deep, like people who are damned to hell, like are pulling them back in. That's exactly <laughs> what happens when you leave a small town. You have to just clean break. Don't tell anyone you're moving. All of a sudden, one day, you're just not fucking there anymore. Yeah. That's how you clean break from these towns. <laughs> Don't have a party. Don't tell anyone you're leaving. Just go. <laughs> you can write them a letter after you're already settled. In your new your new house or whatever. Yeah, send them a postcard from your new life. That's what you should do. <laughs> now, as no shock, the main draw to anyone even remotely considering visiting a town of 1,100 people is going to stay at the Valeska Murder House, which is still stands to this day. And after, at the end of the episode, I kind of talk about 
um, if you're interested in visiting the house, kind of the prices and stuff. But Valeska, you know, obviously this house very famous, but they also have another big claim to fame, and that is this world-renowned statue known as Willard the Pig, which was erected in 1980 and is a tribute to agriculture and farming in the community of Valeska. And there is Willard there. Looks like he could use a new paint job, perhaps. Oh, definitely. I'm going to go ahead and just say that it is regionally renowned because <laughs> I lived in Iowa for 18 years. Never heard of this fucking statue. Well, so. maybe we were more desolate than the rest of <laughs> Iowa then because I'm. look at this pig. You're telling me people don't come from all across the world to see this pig? It does look a little bit like Floyd. If Floyd <laughs> wasn't uh, that copper color, if it was, you know, painted, I would say it kind of looks like that. Is that the statue for the Iowa-Minnesota game? Yeah, Floyd of Rosedale. That's gotcha. What, okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very large statue of a pig. I have seen it. It, uh, Yeah, that'll be, uh, by the way, that'll be an interesting game because obviously you probably saw um, Minnesota did what Minnesota teams do and yeah. choke when they're not supposed to. Yeah, uh, their main running back, their really good guy, Ibrahim, he was out for that game. That's why they lost. Ah, okay. I didn't yep. know that. Yep. Now, to get an idea of what Valeska would have been like back in 1912, even though they only had a population of, like I said, just over 2,000, it was considered to be a thriving town because it was a pass-through for the railroad uh, every day, multiple times a day. Either freight train freight trains would stop here or there'd be passenger trains dropping people off. Apparently, the town had some attractions, which included several different hotels, different stores, theaters to watch a play at, uh, several restaurants, and a lot of manufacturing, which obviously is good to hire people to work there. So this is going to kind of play a part later on because this means there's a lot of transient people who can stop here or leave here immediately. Yeah, the good thing about uh, one of those little towns too, kind of like the stops, is if you need to like get off, you you want to get off the train, go eat. You might have been if you're traveling from like way out west, you may want to just like jump off, go grab a meal, and then like hop on the next train. If you have one of those tickets that kind of like will just get you there. So, so um, I don't know if you're too. Are you super familiar with like, I, I guess the the train system uh, that would have been coming to Iowa. I don't know exactly what, so not exactly like from Iowa, but I know how it worked kind of in like in Europe. So ah. if you kind of have a ticket that's going to get you from one city to another, you can jump off a train, go eat, you know, take a dump, do whatever, smoke a cigarette, and then hop back on another train. Because you didn't have a ticket for that train. You have a ticket to get you to the like city, whatever station. From yeah. like Paris to Berlin. You don't necessarily have it for a certain train. It's just, you know, it'll get you there. I think that's kind of how it worked for with these ones too. Well, the the YouTube video I, I watched here basically showed if you imagine a giant cane and in Iowa, it goes from basically Iowa to California, Oregon, and then uh, it loops down and then goes into Kansas. So that's kind of the graph of the train system that kind of went through the town. So obviously that's quite a bit of 
area for people to kind of get off and on. Yeah, Iowa was pretty big. Iowa doesn't have any like decent cities on its own, but it's kind of like surrounded by states that do. Yeah. So, you know, there's like there's um, there's a few decent cities in Minnesota. Obviously, there's Chicago, St. Louis in Missouri, also Kansas City, you know, so there's definitely like it's a crossroads state, but it's not like no one ever <laughs> no one really wants to like, you know, go there, especially now. But yeah, no. 2000 people also back then would have been a hell of a town for Iowa. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even in modern day, as we know, Des Moines is, you know, whatever. It's pretty small. Uh, Less yeah. than 500,000. Yeah. And you have, um, what is it? The Quad Cities, which two of them, I think, are in South Illinois. Dakota. Is it Illinois? What's the other way yeah. then? What's the one that shares a town with South Dakota? There's a Davenport, Bettendorf, and then two other ones that I can't really think of. Well, there's one in Iowa. It's like Sioux City and then Sioux Falls, but they're in different. Oh, that's states. in the West. That's in the West. Yeah, those I've heard are pretty nice, but I've never been there. Sioux Falls is the one that has the airport. It's a it's a total dump. I hate that town. <laughs> okay, yeah. never mind. I retract what I don't, said there. <laughs> don't go there. It's oh, it reminded me of a fucking West Texas, but not the nice part of West Texas. Like the <laughs> shit, the shitty part of West Texas. Don't go there. It's like the, uh, the chainsaw massacre family, but a whole town of them, right? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the more prominent characters in this tale here and a, obviously member of Valeska was a gentleman by the name of Josiah B. Moore, who everyone apparently called just JB. And that's kind of, what I'll be calling him through the rest of the episode. Now, he was known for having a prominent business in town. He's a very good businessman, and he ran a company called More Implement Company, which basically means he sold farming equipment, moreover, John Deere. Uh, and for Iowa, obviously, farming community, it's a big deal. Oh, definitely, yeah. Everyone in town basically would have known him. If yeah, he if he ran the town's implement. So he was, uh, you know, apparently he was a man about town. He's quite popular. Family was well respected. So I, I don't know what else there is to say. It's weird to think that John Deere's that old, but it is that old. And as we'll find out, I guess John Deere's was as douchey then as it is now. Yeah. So a lot of those, a lot of those companies that like John Deere and a lot, you know. Um, they're all named kind of after their inventors or the inventor of something. So you really think like John Deere, you're thinking of a tractor or like, you know, kind of like automated, like a combine, something big like that. Back then, like they, the, they call it a combine because it's a combination of like a thresher and a cutter and, you know, all these other things. Back then, those were all separate things that were sold by, you know, these companies like yeah. John Deere. Yeah. So, well, I mean... I kind of, my grandpa obviously is a farmer, so I know back in this time, I believe farming equipment, uh, you had John Deere International, which I think became Case, and it's called something else now, I believe. And then I think Ford actually was making stuff as well, if I yeah, remember I think right. I'm, I'm pretty sure back in 1912, if you were one of those who had one of those kind of, you know, we think of it now as like being, you know, like a little generator. But back then, if you had like one of those motors, 
that you could like run, you know, run your equipment off of. You were like the big farmer, you know, you had the top of the line shit. If you had something like automated like that. He, you would assume if he runs a farming equipment store or whatever, he would, do you think he'd sell horses too? No, that would be more of a, a livery. That would be, mm. you know, that would be like the, the horse people. So he wasn't quite the, he could have expanded his business if he had both. Possibly. You I know. mean, if, I mean, one goes with the other back then. <laughs> you are starting to get into, though, um, you know, obviously invention of like automobile, tractor, the the big trucks are starting to kind of like show up more and more. So you would start to see kind of like the, the usage of horses slowing down and the uses of like, you know, motors, old, old tractors yeah. starting up, but they're yeah. not, I mean, they're nowhere near as good as we have now. Obviously the fuckers we have now drive themselves. Yeah. So based on GPS, pretty, uh, pretty nuts. Yeah. Now, like any eligible bachelor, like Josiah, um, he's not going to remain single for long. So he's got a business and everything. So on December 6th, 1899, he would go on to marry a lovely lady by the name of Sarah Montgomery. The two uh, would actually hold their wedding ceremony at Sarah's parents' house. Best, cheapest wedding venue there was, I guess, at the time. <laughs> Very awkward. Uh, over the years, they would go out to have four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. So very classic names there. Yeah, having your having the wedding out kind of something that's still on and out. Out at the the Wangan plantation. <laughs> yeah, actually, sure. you're not you're, you're not lying. Your house has been home to more wedding venues than most of the fucking churches in town. So, yeah, I think there's been at least what three, two or three people's got married out there. Interestingly enough, none of their own yeah. children, but <laughs> yeah, I was I was just kind of joking, but like, yeah, there's every every time there's like a wedding with anyone like. Not really, well, not your immediate family, but like the spread out family. They all seem to want to get married at your parents' house. I It's free, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, everybody gets married at the expo there. Remember that place? Oh, yeah. Well, everyone at least has their the reception. Expo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were a highfalutin character, you got to the expo. If you weren't that big, you got the, uh, what is it, the wilderness place? Yeah, the next nature door? center. The nature center. Yeah. The only thing nature in there is stuffed fucking animals. That's it. <laughs> or Definitely, taxidermied yeah. animals. What people killed in the yeah, past. Yeah. <laughs> now, on the day of June 9th, 1912, JB, Sarah, and their four children all headed to the Presbyterian Church as they did every Sunday for Mass. At said church, they would meet another family known as the Stillingers, um, the Stillinger family had two daughters, Lena, age 12, and Ina May, age 7, who were friends with Catherine Moore, who was age 9 at the time. Now, apparently, after Mass was over, they were having the annual Children's Day program, which was coordinated by none other than Sarah Moore. And from what I can tell, basically both of these families are attending this Children's Day program maybe before we comment here let me read you kind of i didn't really know what this was but i found an actual presbyterian website that still does something like a children's day something i didn't know if it was like religious specific 
But this okay. is, let me read their exact quote from their website. Our mission is to help children grow socially and emotionally in a loving and nurturing setting where they learn about themselves and their world, communicate with others, and live in Christian community. There it let is. Let me just say, let me just say that this Children's Day program, mandatory attendance. You were Absolute, definitely shamed if you didn't show up. Absolutely. You are going to hell. All that. It's so basically, I mean, I don't, we had like a Children's Day, I'm air quoting here, but it was like a fucking carnival where they just took kids' money. Yes, definitely. That's what that Catholic school was all about. Taking uh, Catholic <laughs> families' money, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. It's everything. Was the most important thing. I was. I remember me and my brothers and sisters were talking the last time we all met up. We were talking about the envelopes that they used to give us. Like it was personalized envelopes that they would give us with our names on it, and then we were supposed to bring that to church every Sunday and like put the money in so that we felt like we were. Ooh, you know, they're gonna know it came from me. You know, basically that was just a ploy though to get us to pay them money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's side money. I don't know what they're going to do, honestly. Like, obviously, the older generation was a lot more involved in giving the church money. And, you know, the more time progresses, it seems like the more less religious people they exist in America. So, I mean, they're going to be hurting for money. Well, especially with, like, it seems like Catholic churches. I don't know if they're the worst for it for people like leaving the church but especially all of the sex scandals and all the shit that we're finding out about that church plus it's just people are getting less and less religious you know what i've heard from people who are still christians just a different ex-catholic who are still christian is the the like long drawn out boring ceremony where it's like a fucking old man rambling on up there for 45 minutes like the younger people like they're going to the more like um I don't even know what you call them the little uh what do they call the non-denominational churches because the yeah. the the ministers are younger they at least know how to lie to you um in a fun way uh you yeah. know so it's a little bit more of a draw yeah you don't have some fucking 85 year old wizard and they have to fucking ring a bell so you know that the magic you know yeah. ringing a fucking bell oh now the now the fucking stale bread's turning into fucking, you know, skin or whatever they're talking about. Honestly, if the if the Catholic Church kind of reforms and, like, invigorates themselves with youth, I think they can draw more people in there, but I, I they're not willing. If they haven't done it in fucking, what, 1,500 years, they're not going to do it anytime soon. Yeah, well, I mean, the same thing if those people who live in these small towns, if they didn't want to show up to church anymore— it's the same gumption for actually leaving that town. That's the reason why they're still showing up pretty much. (laughs) It's just, they always did it. That's, you know, what's comfortable for them and they just kind of can't leave. True. True. You get in a habit sometimes and it's, uh, it's the funnest thing you got to do on a Sunday, I guess. Stuck in a rut. You dig it out until it becomes your. There it is. (laughs) Now, apparently after the children's day program was over, Catherine would ask both Lena and Ina May, uh, hey, you want to come spend the night at my house? And all of the parents agreed. So the Moore family plus Lena and Ina May would arrive, would walk back to their house and we would arrive at around approximately 9.45 p.m. to 10 p.m. that night. 
Obviously, they didn't know the horror scene that's about to transpire within just the few hours. The kids probably just thought, just going out to hang out with our friend here, you know, nothing nefarious is about to happen. But uh, as we get into, it's going to be quite gruesome. Now, one quick... I'm, I'm guessing, I was going to say really quick, I'm guessing they weren't going to be drinking Mountain Dew, eating frozen pizza, and playing Super Nintendo. Nah, that's what we did, man. Come on. <laughs> and then we would, uh, when your dad would be ripping out so bad, we'd see, we'd, what do what did we do? We like ran downstairs to see We're, who could hold their breath the longest. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you had no shame. Uh, your dad, I've still never smelled anything as rancid as that man's <laughs> flatulence. Whoa. Yeah, that yeah, was pretty fucking bad. See, what all I was going to say is there is one source that said it was just really late at night and they didn't want Lena and Inime to walk home by themselves, so they went to stay with them. But not that it really matters in the grand scheme of things, but I don't know. Like you said, when you have something this old, the facts can get a little jumbled a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you're you're in a small town in Iowa. These they would be led by a 12 year old Um, at that time. She was only a couple years away from getting a, you know, a part time job at a store or something and then getting married a couple years after that. So I don't know, like the the dangers of like walking home unless like there were coyotes or something, (laughs) you know. Well, I, I, I don't know that. I don't know. I, I didn't sound like they lived that far, far away, but I guess little kids, it, the other one was eight years old too. I mean, you can't. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I, I mean, eight year old, you probably, they're not the smartest. You probably don't want them just wandering around at night. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of, well, you would think, I don't know how much money these people had, but you would think that they would have like some sort of transportation, like a, like a carriage or something like that. But, Maybe 1912. You would have to be pretty fucking rich to have a have a a car in 1912. I don't even know if Ford was making their automobiles yet. Uh, I don't think the Model T or whatever was until 1917. Maybe I'm maybe it was earlier than that. I'm not certain. Not that it matters. They walked home. That's all we know here. Now it is believed by most that. The murders had to have transpired at least past midnight, which brings the actual date of the murders into June 10th, 1912. So they got home around 10 o'clock. It probably had to be 12, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., somewhere in there when this is about to happen. So just keep that in mind here. Now, okay. to get an idea of the layout of the house, I kind of have a picture here. It's pretty nondescript Iowa house. Uh, it has two floors, as you can see here. On uh, the night in question here, JB and his wife, Sarah, would be sleeping upstairs. Their four children would be sleeping in another room, also upstairs, but down the hall from their parents. And the two guest girls were sleeping in a guest bedroom, which is located on the first floor. So just to kind of, most of the family's upstairs and the two other girls are downstairs. Just to kind of get an idea of what's going to happen here. That goes to that goes to show you too, like how little people thought of kids. Then they have the mom, the dad, and four kids, three bedrooms. But one bedroom is reserved for guests, and all of the kids are just crammed into one room. Yeah. Well, I guess it didn't say, but maybe the 
the guest bedroom was technically one of the other kids' rooms or two of the kids' rooms, but they let them sleep in there. I don't really know, but um, yeah, I would I would hope if I lived in that house that <laughs> like no, you have to you have to live in this one room with all of your brothers and sisters <laughs> while there's an empty empty room and an empty bed just in case we have some friends over. <laughs> but you see you, the house here. I feel like I've seen hundreds of these Midwestern small town houses kind of like shape like this. Oh, yeah. You know, half uh, of the homes in Cresco look like this house. Yeah. I like dinky kind of porch for sitting and spitting. And then yep. <laughs> I actually think this is a I actually think this is a modern photo of the house, but it's uh, they've obviously kept it in original form. Maybe they put new siding on it or something, but. Windows and all that, probably the same. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, you'll, you'll see these anywhere. This, this, basically, this exact house. Um, I mean, it kind of looks like a modern, like, prefab house. Yeah. That they basically make in a factory and then, like, kind of stucco together out. I call it stucco because it's Arizona, but they, they basically just fucking, like, bolt it together out in the field. You know, it's very cheap, very, very a humble home, basically. Well, probably nice back then though you know this house is sturdy because it was built by probably a team of very intoxicated german men um because oh, it was yeah. from iowa you know so uh you know it's good at some point uh during the night everyone's asleep very quiet in the house at this point a mysterious stranger will lift the hatch on the back of the house uh which mind you isn't even locked because it was supposed to be a safe town nobody was concerned about locking the door in Valeska uh, at the time, so this guy just walked right in. Now, this intruder was carrying a uh, hand axe or an axe in one hand, and it's hard. I can't really, t- no one really specifies if it's a hatchet, which is like a smaller axe, or it's a full size axe, but I think it is a full size axe because I don't know how popular hatchets were in 1912. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, with, like we were talking about, you know, back in the day, basically everyone had axes. I don't know the popularity of, like, hatchets. I I do know most people probably had either one or the other, if not both, back then. Um, Did they say anything? uh, Well, we'll get into this, but usually you could tell by kind of, like, how deep the head went in to the wound and, like, how large the actual wound was. Like, that would be the difference between if it was a hatchet or an axe, just because of how, like, the uh, lever action on it. I, now that uh, I kind of think about it a little more, I actually do believe it is probably a full-size axe because there, as we're going to find out, there's bludgeoning, and I'd assume you need the big one for that. Okay, yeah. Also, I was going to talk a little bit about the fact that none of the uh, doors on this home were locked. So we both grew up on a farm. Um, how many times I, I I can't count besides when we went on vacation and our cars weren't there. I can't count on more than one hand the amount of times we actually had our door locked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can say my parents started locking everything probably within the last ten years, but before that, uh, no, not at all. Yeah, the only time we ever used the locks. When we were fucking with each other and like locking each other. Yeah. That was the only time the doors ever got locked. I remember, I don't think, 
your grandma, whenever we would go over and like hang out at your grandma's house, I don't think she ever locked her door either. No, no, she didn't. Not until uh, we got a little older, then she started locking it all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's just we lived in a fucking small town, so that's just kind of how it is. It's crazy. I wouldn't even imagine like even when I'm at my apartment, I lock it. Yeah. You know, people have told me I'm crazy because the first thing I do when I enter the house is lock the fucking door. I'm like, <laughs> what? There's no benefit to not having it locked. Like there's many benefits of locking it. There's none to not locking it. Yeah. And, unless there's a fire. But I mean, it takes an, a half a second to unlock it. Yeah. Out, so. Yeah, exactly. And around this time, I mean, it was very, very common not to lock your door. So, yeah. But uh, but another interesting aspect, I think, here before I kind of get into the details. Um, so we know for certain that he there must have been an oil lamp or something in the kitchen because the person grabbed that and then was making their way. Um, through the house. Now, the other thing that I think is kind of prudent to maybe finding out who this person is, is it's very apparent that they kind of understood the layout of the house because the killer immediately goes to JB and Sarah's bedroom and just walks past the kids and stuff. So it's, it's either the house, either someone who might have been here before scoping the house or I guess it's possible all the houses are laid out the same, but it's I think it's an interesting aspect that they knew exactly where they wanted to go. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, this is, what, 1912, so it's before the Great Depression, but there still would have been transient, you know, field hand kind of workers, you know, especially riding that railroad. I'm just trying to think of, like, maybe kind of the situation. Um also, God, I mean, it's so hard because it's so long ago, you know, kind of like you're the normal things you're thinking of. But yeah, back then, though, too, in these houses, they really didn't have a lot of like hallway. I'm pretty no. sure a lot of those old houses were just like room to room doors. Yeah, but that's more Victorian. This is a little bit later. So there might have been. Halls. I'm just trying to like, you know, picture the house. Anytime I've ever been in a house like back in Iowa that was over 150 years old, it seems like there was a minimal amount of hallways. You just walked from room to room, you know? See, the kind of, judging by how they were talking about layout, I kind of, like, obviously your childhood home. Remember the upstairs? There's like a tiny hallway, but it kind of goes into the, if you imagine where your attic was and then where uh, your brother Chris's room was, that's kind of how I envision the difference between the bedrooms of where the kids are and where the parents are so basically okay, like a, yeah a so it's kind of like wrap around well yeah kind of like stair come up straight hallway two bedrooms yep gotcha that's kind of what i'm envisioning here but obviously uh i guess i could have tried to take a virtual tour or something but it i guess it doesn't really matter in the end but uh yep. can you continue on here now once the stranger entered the room he he stood over jb and this is where he would slam the axe into his head. Although we know for certain he slammed the butt end into him first. So he used the um, the flat side of the axe to smash it into his head, which crushed his skull and more than likely killed him instantly. Now, they know for certain that Sarah didn't wake up even after this happened, even after her husband just, you know, got his head crushed in here. 
But what's interesting and what one source said is Sarah is going to be the only person in the house that gets hit with the sharp end of the axe. So she's getting cut with the sharp end of the axe and it's so visceral that there's actually marks in the ceiling because this person swung the axe so high it gouged into the ceiling as he was coming down. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Is it is it one of those, um, the V-shaped ceilings, or is it the flat? A flat ceiling, do you know? I don't know. I would. it almost have to be a flat one, right? Yeah, well, I imagine if they were trying to swing and it was a V-shape, maybe the head of the bed was right, kind of like your room back at the house that you and your sister had, kind of like how the upstairs, the V-shape kind of like goes along like the sides of the walls. Very true. Very yeah. true. It's, well, I imagine the the benefit of using the butt end rather than the the sharp end, you would want to make sure that you got a good hit and not a glancing blow. Because, I mean, every anytime there's one of these, like, intruder where they murder the entire family, they always go after, like, the father first or the oldest male to get, you know, the whoever can fight back the most. So you'd want to take them out, like, right away, the first hit. Right. So... Maybe they worried about a glancing blow. I don't. I don't know. It's or misting, perhaps. But I'm just trying to, like, in my head, like, work this from what you know, listening to small town murder and shit. So, well, we'll we'll revisit that once because um, he does more damage post mortem. So, uh, okay, we'll kind of come back and then I'll get your opinion on what you think. So, he basically with Sarah JB, he strikes him once in the head. They're dead instantly at this point here. Now, he would then go to the children's room of the Moors, and he would kill all of them with the blunt end of the axe. And um, they believe basically how their bodies were found, that none of these children woke up. And then the killer went down to where Lena and Iname were. He would kill Iname first. Uh, but they do suspect that Lena actually had woken up because she is the only person in the house who had defensive wounds, meaning she attempted to fight back at some point, but obviously um, he he murdered her as well. Okay, so she got her hands up, basically. Yeah, basically. Okay. Like, they know yeah. what someone looks like if they're trying to, like, you know, it's a natural reaction if someone's swinging something at, uh, at you to, like, block, you know what I mean? Oh, definitely, yeah. It's it's so, because he, he's going from room to room, and... It's definitely almost like he knows, like you said, known layout. It seems like he kind of knows who's here. Yeah, because he, if he, if he didn't like know the, because it's it's not just the the mom, the dad, and the four kids. There's also two other kids. So it's not like he was counting people and being like, oh, I got them all. He knew that there was going to be more people downstairs. Guess. Right. Well, I'm going to tell you about. Um, one of the sources had a strange, I don't know if it's true or not. I'll kind of go into that um, once we get through this because it'll make okay. more sense. But basically, now that this person had officially killed everyone in the house, presumably with a single blow, he then went back upstairs and continued to sla uh, like slam the axe into all of the members' heads, including the two little girls downstairs, until... Basically, their heads were nothing more than just like a bloody piece of gore. There's like nothing left of their head. 
Now, one source said that he, that JB actually had 30 strikes of the axe in his head more than anybody else, which kind of makes me think the killer wanted him dead more than anybody, but also why did he bludgeon everybody but hit Sarah with the axe end? That I think is interesting too. Yeah, I mean, that many times, that shit must have been pretty personal. That's what I'm saying, right? That's usually a a telling sign, but also if he killed Sarah in a different way than everybody else, that would kind of make you suspect there's something about her too. Yeah, well, you did, I mean, let's see. Trying to just, he was a, he was the business owner in town. I mean, maybe back then they usually ran on like kind of localized credit. So maybe people owed him money. Maybe somebody thought that they got screwed over by some equipment that they bought from him. Or, you know, he was trying to get the money back from somebody and they didn't have it or something like that. But I mean, definitely maybe there's, or could have been, you know, somebody who, you know, he could have been having sex with the guy's wife or something. (laughs) It's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different like places. We have, it's funny because we have some suspects we're going to talk about. um, And you're not that far off from one of the main suspects. Yeah. My, uh, well, my just, you know, like, just like when you're listening to a true crime podcast, you're just trying to imagine your, all right, who the fuck could this be? You know, from what you've given me so far. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, it is weird that he would, um, it's almost like you imagine he just turns the ax around in his hands and then kills the wife with the, uh, the, the blade edge rather than the blunt edge. Yeah. So he, he like did that. It's not just like he went into a frenzy and just was swinging, swinging, swinging. He actually like stopped, turned it in his hand and then hit her with the, the head end. Yeah. It's well, let me read you this next detail because I think it gives a little more, it might get your head moving a little bit more about what you think happened here. Now the killer did some kind of peculiar things. Now it's speculated or believed that he actually would have remained in the house till at least 5 a.m. that morning. So he was there quite a long time. The The killer actually took the time to, he put basically bed sheets or bed whatever over JB and Sarah's head. And then he put what they called gauze undershirts over Herman, Catherine, Boyd, uh, Paul, Lena, and Ina May's faces. So this, and then he, actually, let me continue here. He then can, um, put clothing and towels over all the windows and the mirrors in the house. Now, I think you probably heard this before. This is like a yeah. uh, a shame thing, right? This is serial killer 101. He doesn't want the, the victims to look at him. He doesn't want anyone outside to look at him. And he doesn't want himself to look at himself. That's why he covers the mirrors. Yeah. That's serial killer shit before they... 70 or what 60 years before they even fucking yeah found that shit yeah so it's very when i heard that detail i'm like okay this is um a very i guess the thing they found out that people do this to it's like a shame thing they don't want these the people looking at them or like you said all of that now um another a few other interesting things is so the, they found basically a bowl of water with blood swirling in it, and they believe the killer actually wiped himself, wiped the blood off of himself in this bowl. Additionally, they would find a two-pound piece of uncooked bacon that he, the killer took out of the icebox, 
and he wrapped it in a towel. And that was kind of just laying in the middle of the floor along with a keychain. And it was a keychain that did not belong to the Moors. They didn't really go into detail about what the keychain looked like. But when the stranger was done, he actually took the keys for the house, locked the door behind himself, and then just disappeared. So what do you make of that so far? Um, ooh, lot of lot to get in there. So obviously, 1912, he's not worried about, you know, fingerprints. He's not worried about any of that shit. Uh, DNA, you know, blood type, anything. Also, I don't know, the the two pounds of uncooked bacon, maybe, I don't know, and the keychain, I don't know if it's some kind of maybe like a signature thing, um, or maybe he just kind of like, you know, maybe his head was kind of swirling around maybe he thought he might make himself some bacon you know kind of like that you know they talk about small town murder people are killing you know stabbing 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 get tired go eat a sandwich come back and stab some more yeah yeah um also he locked the house before he left maybe it was to give him more time so that if anyone came you know if you have close friends just like i was saying with like your grandma's house we would just kind of like even if i was coming to find you i would just walk into your grandma's house yeah because i had been there so many times yeah at this time same situation maybe people would have thought oh they must not be home and if they locked their house they must be gone for like a week just like i was talking about when we would go on vacation we would that's the only time we would lock our house so if we locked our house you knew that we were gone for like a week yeah so very true now i'm gonna give you a very, I think this is a straw man argument here about the uh, uncooked bacon. But so all the sources I read through didn't mention this detail, but the YouTube video I watched did. Allegedly, the girls, Lena and Ina May, were staged in the downstairs bedroom in basically like a provocative way, I guess, which might lead to one of our suspects who might be a pedo. So, yeah. and then on the YouTube thing, they said people speculate this guy was using the uncooked bacon as like a pseudo fleshlight while he was masturbating after this. But the thing is, there wasn't any uh, fluids found, I guess I should say. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I didn't really think about that part, but I did, I did kind of think about like, when you talked about him like laying all the clothes and stuff like that, I was trying, is that staging or is that more of a shame thing? But you said he actually like manipulated the two girls as bodies. One source said that I, it's the only okay. source I found that on maybe some of the websites I looked through just didn't want to mention that detail, but there's only one source said that, which would mean, I guess that the killer killed everybody, but was targeting the two girls. Okay. I guess that's what, if we believe that, that would be the motive for the killer, I guess. Gotcha. All right. But again, I don't know. Maybe once we go through the suspects, it'll make, maybe that'll have a edge to it, but I don't know. And it's hard to say when it's only one source versus like five or six others. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you try to Venn diagram that shit as best you can. But if there's something good you find on just one source, you just mention it. But it is good that you mentioned is just found in one source. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They the people know how we do these things, Phil. We try to find everything and then mush them together like a fucking potato salad or something. We just throw <laughs> everything in there and call it a day. 
Tuna casserole. Here we go. <laughs> now, the following day, their neighbor, uh, Mary Peckham, noticed that the Moore household was awfully quiet. She's quite a bit nosy, I'm guessing here. Now, most yep. of the time, according to Mary, they would have already been outside either doing the chores or she would have seen maybe the kids running around or something like that. So sometime between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary, curious now, would actually go and knock on the front door. Obviously, didn't get an answer back. She would try to enter, but found that the door was locked. So she was really concerned at this point. And she decided she was going to go ahead and get a hold of JB's brother, Ross Moore, to kind of get in the house and, and find out what's going on here. I don't know. Some of these said telephones. Was telephones readily available here? I was kind of questioning that. Oh, um, I mean, so when I was at the University of Northern Iowa, there was a museum of a one-room schoolhouse, and they actually had a telephone in there, and some of the people kind of like on the little, it was it was like the history program. Somebody pointed out, like, that telephone looks weird. They wouldn't have that telephone there till like the 20s. And this was like an 1800s little schoolhouse. Apparently, there was like in Iowa, you know, systems of, like phone lines and stuff like that, that they had. And then it kind of branched out from like government buildings and schools and everything to kind of like more. I don't know. I don't know about phones though, like in individual people's homes in like 1912. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, that kind of shit, like running water, phones, electricity, this was all kind of like trickling in, but it really hit big in America during the depression and kind of like FDR's programs he set up, Yeah, you know, like TVA and all of that. That's what brought a lot of, you know, electricity to the rural areas. So though this place did have the railroad and there was a lot of telegraph, power, and phone lines that ran along the railroad at this time. So, so maybe she did. Either way, one, either she called him or ran to his house. I don't know. Got a hold of Ross. Okay. Ross arrives on the scene, and he's not just knocking. He's kicking the shit out of the door, thinking maybe they're just in a really deep sleep. Uh, nobody's answering again. He began shouting, and nobody was responding. Ross tried to peek through all the windows, but obviously all the windows are covered. Killer yep. covered all the windows. So Ross, I don't know where Ross got it, but he must have found a spare key or had a spare key. So he finally decided to crack open the door. He walked in and within just minutes, he saw the whore, ran back outside, told Mary, go ahead and contact Sheriff Hank Horton. We've got an issue here and he's got to come look at this crime scene. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, it's that it had to be a fucking terrifying yeah. sight. Yeah, um, especially especially with you talked about how much that the killer used the axe and yeah, I mean these people at this time don't have TV, don't have anything, so they're not desensitized at all. No, there's no there's no horror movies, there's no graphic anything. It's you know like they can't I mean they can't even fucking imagine. Like, it's not even in books or anything like this, anything this bad. So actually, um, wait till I get Unless- to wait till I get to a point here in a, in a few paragraphs. Uh, I think people really wanted to see this. OK, it's quite shocking, honestly. But either way, 
Sheriff Hank Horton, along with Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Dr. Edgar Hugh, uh, they would arrive on the scene to inspect it. And for some reason, and I still cannot wrap my head around this, along with the cop and these doctors, the minister of the Presbyterian Church, Wesley Ewing, he actually decided, hey, I'm going to come along with you and look at this. Don't get it at all, but they would discover the bodies of 43-year-old J.B. Moore, 39-year-old Sarah Moore, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul, 12-year-old Lena, and 8-year-old Ina May. Just so everyone gets an idea of how young these people were when they were murdered there, but... Can you think of any reason why the fucking minister decided to come? Or I guess he could last rites or something, maybe? You're not allowed to say no to God. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah. He was, I don't know, that's how the Catholics work. If if the Catholic preacher wants to go do anything and, you know, no one's allowed to say no to him because he's, you know, it goes <laughs> he's got him, the- then the Pope, then God. So. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a trump card on uh, basically everything. Yeah. He's got the one-way line, so he gets it. He's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, soon the coroner named L.A. Linquist, he would arrive on scene, and he would have enough time to give an examination and an estimated time of death and cause of death and all of that. Um, they would actually find the murder weapon, the axe, just laying in the guest bedroom where Lena and Ina May were. Um, and actually, you could tell that The killer had tried to wipe the blood off of it, but he couldn't quite do it. And when they kind of looked a little deeper, they would actually find out that that axe had was JB's and the killer just took it out of his tool shed. So he didn't even bring his own weapon to the crime. He didn't have his own tools. Okay. No. So again, does this mean that somebody knew that was in there? Um, Jesus, it's, I don't know, it's, it. maybe he, maybe it was kind of like a spur of the moment thing. I mean, possibly he was, you know, following these people around. Maybe he was even at that, uh, that event, the church event that day. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of weird because in my mind, this guy showed up with his own axe, you know, kind of like his own, like, I'm thinking like serial killer mode here. So maybe he, you know, showed up with his own tools of the trade type situation. I actually remember like the New or- the New Orleans Axe Man or whatever. Um, I actually believe, if I remember correctly, that he actually used the axe of the owners of the house he killed to kill them. Okay. Well, we did talk about how readily available axes were. So. I mean, they probably had a wood stove. Maybe he probably cut his own wood and stuff, I would assume. You wanted to clear land, you had to cut down your own trees, you know? Right. It's that situation. Also, I I thought about this while you were talking. So they didn't have the desensitized, you know, to violence. They weren't so desensitized to violence from, like, the media, like we were. However, in real life, like, how many times have you ever seen anyone's, like, arm being like torn apart in an industrial accident or a farm farm accident, something like that. These people probably saw a lot more of that or like injuries from war, stuff like that. Right. So very, very true. Now, oh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say, yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, these people, 
Perhaps these people have seen like the worst, like someone having their arm ripped off by a thresher or something like that. So <laughs> it probably was quite common, honestly. Yeah. Now, are you ready? L- let me tell you about this little clown show that's about to transpire here. So uh, apparently when the sheriff was notified, he must have said something to it like a f- one, two townsfolk in town. Well, this actually made the news spread like wildfire. So within a short period, hundreds of curious town folk, they actually arrived on the scene and they're all gathered outside and and they, they want to get in. The sheriff's not trying not to let him, but he, he literally told them, don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it, regret it until the last day of your life. Well, this was basically an invitation so everybody just flooded in the house. Keep in mind, the crime scene hasn't even been touched yet. So these people are trampling evidence. If there's any sort of hope of catching it, like having a fingerprint, there's just hundreds of people's fingerprints in here now. And yep. allegedly, one person actually stole a piece of J.B. Moore's skull and kept it for keepsake, which, like, you know, it's... Ever, there's never not been morbidly curious people, but the sheriff, come on, dude, you got to stop these people from trampling around the house. Yeah. So back then, really, I mean, kind of hearing stories about uh, when Bonnie and Clyde were killed, uh, I believe Don, I believe John Dillinger, some of the other famous people who were killed by police, a lot of uh, basically just regular people coming to the scene would steal little mementos, even people like cutting off, you know, trigger fingers or cutting off like pieces of um, the like hair, you know, clothing, anything, maybe trying to find like a bullet casing something. What's really, really fucking sick about is these people were in the town that the victims lived in. Like the, the father JB owned the implement. People knew him. You know, this yeah. is, it's pretty fucking sick. It's just like, I, I don't know. There's just, <laughs> I, I guess when you have hundreds of people and there's only like a couple cops here, it's maybe hard to control them, but Jesus, man, it, they've made, not to say that they would have solved it if these people weren't here, but it doesn't help. Oh, definitely. No. Yeah. The people, the people going in there trampling evidence and all of that, I mean, the the forensics were so bad back then. You, it's kind of like when you hear about the Jack the Ripper case. Yeah. Um, them just trying to like, you know, using these brand new techniques of like crime scene photography and all of that stuff. You know, it's it's kind of like that. They're in the just the infant days of actually trying to figure out murders and not just hoping that they catch him. You know, by chance. A lot of times back then, they would just go find somebody and say, like, uh, he probably did it and then convict him, you know? Yeah. Well, now, again, one source here. um, Apparently, there was the Valeska National Guard. I don't know if that's actually what it was or like a militia or something, but they actually had to come to the house and forcefully remove everybody. And then they finally got the horse uh, or the house cordoned off now obviously at this point they looked over the crime scene as best as they could um they don't have the forensic tools like we have today so 
they didn't really find a whole lot of evidence outside of, you know, how they were murdered, how many times they were stabbed, the gouges in the ceiling, the bacon, the lamp, the clothes, you know, all that stuff we talked about. So yep. they don't really have many suspects, but, and obviously nobody's ever been caught, but they do have a few people that were interviewed or speculated that we'll kind of talk about here. And this will be kind of the point where I think it'll be interesting to hear if any of these people stick out to you. I tried to only include ones that I thought were kind of interesting in regards to a possible suspect. Okay. So I can just start off here with the first guy. And I think this is probably the loosest one possible, but a lot of people talked about a man by the name of Lee Van Gilder. Now, he was the former brother-in-law of Sarah Moore. Lee Van Gilder was married to Sarah's sister Mary at one point, but odd for the time, they actually got divorced. Allegedly, there was a lot of bad blood between Sarah's family and him after the divorce, and he already had a criminal history and was known for being very prone to violence. So they kind of considered this guy, you know, obviously not a great guy, known to be violent, hated the family. Could he have had enough animosity to kill everybody? Kind of a situation where they think about, you know, anyone who might've had bad blood with the family. And then they kind of look at this guy, maybe a bit of a loose cannon, an outcast. And they, you know, someone easy to point to. Yeah. I, We will say that all these, well, except for one, all these people allegedly have alibis, but also in 1912, you can basically just lie and have a fucking alibi. Yeah. I mean, there's no cameras anywhere. They're not giving out receipts at a store. No. You know, it's (laughs) basically just like, yep, I was there and my two best friends will vouch for, you know, or my wife. Basically, yeah. were vouched for me. Yeah. So. so allegedly, Lee Van Gilder had an alibi, or he was in a different state, allegedly, or something, on the night of the killing. But he's kind of, um, he's a suspect, I guess. Now let me okay. let me tell you about this one. I think this is a tough one because this is also an uncaught person, but also it is a a a fact that. These murders were going on. It was actually believed that there was a rampant serial killer that was killing people around the Midwest around this time. In 1911, the families of the Burnhams and Waynes had actually all been killed with an axe in Colorado Springs. Same year, a family in Monmouth, Illinois, had also also all been killed with an axe. The Showman family was killed in Ellsworth, Kansas the same year. Now, for a measly four days before the Moore family was killed, another very similar killing happened in Paola, Kansas. And I think this is the one where this whoever killed these people um, put sheets over the windows, very similar to what happened to them. So it's kind of... Were they the unfortunate victim to this mass serial killer? So it's either a serial killer killing all these people or a whole bunch of copycat killers within like the span of two years. Okay. It's, I mean, 
from what it sounded like, the the man doing this crime, I'm gonna just go ahead and assume it was a dude. Yeah. The guy doing this crime um definitely did not sound like his first time. He no. knew exactly he knew exactly like go in, you know, kill the father quick and take him out just one by one. He only ever woke up one person while doing this. Think about how quiet he was, you know, how careful he was not to kick anything, something like that. So I'm guessing it was not his first rodeo at doing this. No. So, I mean, this does kind of go up a little bit. Um, it is kind of scary to think, I mean, he, you know, a lot of, a lot of during the seventies, um, they would use the highway systems to kind of travel around and, you know, find their victims. This guy was using kind of like the most modern mode of transportation at that time, the rails. Railroad, yep. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I, I remember a long time ago, I heard a thing where they were trying to connect all of these murders with, maybe it was the same guy who was killing all the people in New Orleans. Like maybe this was that person was fleeing the heat in New Orleans and came and killed all these people. I guess it's possible, but um, I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting to me that entire families were wiped out with an ax in all of these places in the Midwest, which probably were somewhere along the railroad system, like you said. Yeah, but I mean, one thing we mentioned a bunch of times, just how common axes were back then. Yeah. Nowadays, if there was a murderer going around killing people with axes, that's a very specific MO for this time period, 2022. Very specific for right now. That has You have to bring that axe with you. You had to go to a store and pick that axe up. So back then they were just everywhere. So right. Right. He like back then he wouldn't he would have just known that it's not like he had to go like bring an axe, find it, buy it, whatever. He just knows that there's gonna be one there. Yeah. Then he can just drop it and walk away. You right. Know? No fingerprints, no DNA, no blood, no nothing to bring that axe back to him. Not even it's not even like that was a special kind of axe that you could only buy in St. Louis. And that could trace him back to murders in, say, St. Louis. He just grabbed the axe that was theirs, killed them all, dropped it, and walked out the door. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, forensics obviously wasn't great. So, and America was so big <laughs> and yeah. kind of all, like most places were pretty rural, you could just vanish into thin air. Oh, and this was pre-FBI, pre-local um, and state police speaking with each other. You kill someone in this town, you go to Missouri, and no one's even heard of them. No. You could tell yeah. them you, a different name, and they just believe that's your name. Yep. Oh, it's on a piece of paper that the government gave you. All you do is you erase whatever last name you had. You're not Sullivan, you're not Sullivan anymore. Now you're Sandeman. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> you can be whatever you want to be. Now, this this next suspect, I think, is a very interesting one. Now, this guy, he actually confessed to killing the family here. Uh, but we'll kind of get into that. Now, he was named... Reverend George Kelly, who is a traveling minister. Now, George. I already think it's him. <laughs> <laughs> now, George Kelly had actually traveled to their Presbyterian church and was at the children's day services on 
June 9th, 1912. George apparently had a history of sexual deviancy and other mental issues and was highly suspected of being a pedophile. This is kind of the guy that if we believe the girls were staged in a certain sexual manner, this guy is kind of raising some red flags here. Now, it was known that he left Valeska immediately after the murders occurred. There's two interesting aspects to him as a suspect that kind of uh, put him there. The police are pretty certain that the killer actually had to be left-handed based on how the axe killed the people, which, oddly enough, George Kelly was. Secondly, George, uh, he had actually taken a bloody piece of clothing to a cleaner in a nearby town after the murders. And allegedly, this is allegedly, a few days after the murders, George tried to pose as a member of the Scotland Yard and tried to have a look around the Moore's house. So... Ding, uh, ding, ding. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sold on that last little bit. Because <laughs> I was talk. I was going to mention that with all those people there, it'd be hard. You would kind of want to like look at to see who keeps showing up because, you know, the crowd's going to dwindle down day after day. Who keeps showing up? So here's this fucking, and he's posing as a cop, yeah. which is a total serial killer thing to do, <laughs> yeah. to pose as a police officer. So It's funny because the police would actually... Uh, arrest him, interrogate him for a very long time. And George Kelly, he actually openly admitted, hey, I killed the whole family, I killed them all. But then he quickly recanted what he said, and because he recanted so quickly, uh, the jury actually refused to indict him on the murders. So you said that the jury, even though he admitted to killing the family, then he quickly recanted, and this is to indict him. Yeah. I imagine that the jury did not indict him for the same reason why the other reverend was allowed into the to go along with the police and go into the house. It's because he's the man of God and no no, man of God wouldn't do this. He's yeah. you know, especially if this is a very like we talked about the Presbyterian, you know, kind of being like the big religion in this town. It's, you know, they're not if this jury was made up of all Presbyterians or all like religious people, which a lot of, you know, most people were religious back then. You weren't allowed to not be pretty much. Yeah. So I'm, especially in a small town like this, I'm guessing that basically they just said, no, no, it couldn't be him. Had to be some transient, some, you know, heathen, basically. Some uh, atheist probably is what they said. But yeah, it's this guy. Go ahead. Back in this time, probably a Jew, but there you go. (laughs) A Jew or a non-white person is probably who the jury wanted to convict at this time. So, <laughs> uh, Let me read you the final suspect, and then I want you to kind of give me um, who you think is the best suspect. Now, this guy is kind of the guy who a lot of people <laughs> are leaning on or because there's a lot of connections here. Now, the suspect is actually named Frank Jones. Now, Frank Jones was actually JB's previous employer who had a business selling farm equipment that JB had worked at for the past seven years. But JB decided to quit when allegedly Frank wanted him to start working 
15 hour days, six days a week. And he's like, no, not doing that, (laughs) which is fucking insane, by the way. Now, the reason why Frank would actually grow to hate JB for quitting was not just because he quit. It was actually because JB was a star salesman. And when JB opened his own farming equipment business, John Deere actually ditched Frank Jones's uh, business and moved their account into JB's business, which going to cause some bad blood here. To make yep. matters worse, allegedly, uh, most of the townsfolk knew that JB was actually having an affair <laughs> with Frank Jones's daughter, Donna Jones. Uh, and apparently the hatred between the men ran so deep, they would actually, they wouldn't talk and they would actively avoid each other just so they didn't have to look at each other. So, and the whole town knew about the rivalry between Frank Jones and JB, uh, but they didn't think it was bad enough where Frank Jones or Frank Jones hiring a person to kill the whole family. So Mm. he's an interesting one. Last tidbit here. Uh, Actually, 1913, Frank Jones would be elected as a Iowa state Senator. So there you go. Um, He was arrested at one point, but again, allegedly had an alibi. So they didn't indict him or anything, but uh, he only won one term as the state senator, I guess probably these, this people talking about this uh, murder case probably didn't help him. Yeah. Um, all right. So bunch of little things I'm going to jump into here. So this is pre progressive era back then. Like if you had a factory job, you were expected to work like 12 hour days and have every other Sunday off at some of these factories. Yeah. So kind of like before, the the labor union started back when it was okay to kill people striking because they wanted to you know <laughs> not work at your fucking yeah. your factory or your whatever um so yeah i can see definitely like six days a week 15 hour days um if he was a quote-unquote capitalist you know he just wanted him to just like basically they would run their machines and they thought well why can't we run our around you know yeah that sort of thing um, let's see. So looks like that first thing, this is the person you were talking about with, uh, you know, a rival in business and yep. also having an affair with the daughter of Frank Jones, Donna <laughs> yeah. Jones. Yeah. Um, remember how, you, remember how you were talking about <laughs> those things in the beginning and I'm yeah. like, this guy kind of exists. Yeah. I, I, I kind of felt like you were saying like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I actually don't like this guy for mm. the murders as mm. much as I think that the Reverend um, actually getting into the later part. So, I mean, obviously there's a shit ton of bad blood. Um, the sexual stuff might come from him wanting to maybe embarrass uh, who he thought was uh, JB's daughters, but that's a little, I don't really, I'm not buying that. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch just kind of like in my mind. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, Jesus, like basically ruining your business and doing all of that. He would definitely want to take out JB. I don't know if that makes him a family killer. No, you know, no full on. Like he goes 
full on, he went from being respected businessman, you know, like hard worker. His apparent, he, it's not like he wanted him to go from 40 hours a week to 15 hours a day. So he was probably a super hard worker that it led up to 15 hour days, six yeah. days a week. Yep. So, I mean, this guy sounds like a pretty solid dude to all of a sudden go from just normal businessman, family man, worker to fucking full blown serial killer with an MO and with the ability to pull all of these off with only one person having defensive. I don't really like him for that. No, I don't. I think this guy was a practice serial killer. Yeah. I think he had, I think he had a lot of uh, notches in his axe handle. Do you, so. do you think then it was that undiscovered roaming serial killer in the Midwest? I believe it was the Reverend. Oh, the Reverend. Okay. Yeah. If we believe, I'm, if we believe he's a pedophile and the two girls were staged in a sexual way, their bodies, then I would definitely believe that he is a prime suspect. Definitely. I mean, the, the roaming, I mean, this George Kelly was a traveling Reverend. So, I mean, have they tried to link up any of the places that he was at compared to like when the crimes happened or have no. they kind of counted him out of those? I think after the jury didn't want to indict him, they just kind of ruled him out. Oh, I mean, modern people kind of like, oh. looking back. have they tried, have they tried to kind of like, you know, figuring out like drawing the lines of like where the killer was and where George Kelly was, if they were ever at the same place at the same time. Not that I have. Probably, s- probably pretty hard to track that down nowadays. Yeah. I mean, fuck, it's... The 100-year anniversary was 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, uh, it's I know. quite it's, uh, <laughs> I'm Look, I obviously didn't have time to read a whole book on this subject, but I'm assuming that would have a lot more detail. Um, all the sources, though, basically had um, Frank Jones... George Kelly, this like Carney guy, which I didn't include him because I thought I was really, really loose, like even looser than fucking Lee Gelder. And then uh, that that like random axe murder, possible serial killer in the Midwest were kind of the main guys. Yeah. Random Carney is such a cliche killer. (laughs) Yeah. The biggest the biggest murder to ever happen in our was a Carney killer. Yeah. Yeah, it's I the reason they included him too is because the guy was they caught him like reading the newspaper about the murders and like asking questions, but he was kind of known for being a transient guy. So it's like I I I I it just seemed people read I mean, obviously they're interested in the murder. A hundred fucking people stormed into this little ass house. Yeah, and I mean it's there's such a it's such a preference for it wasn't anyone from our town. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't the good reverend. It wasn't anyone from our town. It wasn't this respected businessman, Frank Jones. It must have been uh there, that guy, transient, you know, small hands, smells like cabbage. It's him. <laughs> it's gotta be him. <laughs> now, uh, let me say one more thing here, and it was actually I wanted to do a paranormal case, right? And then yeah. obviously this house still is up and you can tour it. And you can take ghost tours of it, which honestly, I probably would. Um, But then I kind of forgot about how crazy this murder was because nobody's ever been caught for it. And it was extremely brutal, obviously. So if 
anybody was interested in this, okay? So if you wanted a daytime tour, $10 a person, 12 and over. Uh, okay. Senior, 65 and over, $5. No, no reservations needed. But this is what I think is the coolest, okay? For You can stay overnight here for uh, $428, and it's that price is for uh, one to six guests. So if you have six friends, you call up and you can stay overnight in the house. Would you, would you do that? Oh, definitely for wait. So it's, if you have a group of six people, it's still $400. Well, but you can split it between the six of you. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So it's not 400 each. No, 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 like no. 400 for the group. Shit. That's less than, yeah, that would, uh, I would definitely, is it said to be haunted? Yes. There's Legit, a, legitimately, or is it, you know, like we, tourist haunted? You know what I mean? Well, there's tourist people who actually want, you want to hear a quote from a very famous person who's actually stayed in this house overnight. Um, his name yes. is Zach Baggins. Uh, this is yep. literally on the website. His quote is the most intense case of good versus evil I've ever come across. <laughs> God, what a cunt. Jesus, I hate that. <laughs> fucking, no, when you said that, I was like, it's going to be fucking Zach back, isn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, there, there is a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of people who claim there's weird activity here. Um, I didn't look at too much evidence. I, it's not, I don't think they have like a full body apparition, but, um, you know, places like this, obviously, it reminds me a lot of Amityville. With the murders yeah. and then the haunting, but obviously I don't think the haunting actually happened. I think they made it up. This, though, if they've been staying here for decades and decades and decades and people are still ha like experiencing things, I think that gives a little more credence that maybe there's something weird here. I can't say for sure if it's haunted or not, but I would definitely check it out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if it was that haunted, I might have heard about it before, especially living in Iowa. May have heard about it. Um Though it would be interesting to visit the place, you know, uh, kind of do the, if you overnight, maybe, you know, I mean, all of those places are pretty interesting. Uh, anything that's, you know, kind of like the site of an infamous, you know, mass murder kind of, you know, just imagining that there might be ghosts that are, you know, still hanging around. Maybe one day you and I will take a vacation and we'll go visit this house and then we'll go to Missouri and see the World War One Museum, and we'll <laughs> we'll really check out the Midwest here. Yeah, go go on a real tour. Yeah, I actually refuse to uh, travel to Northeast Iowa. So yeah, going to Southwest Iowa that's still on the uh, green light yeah. area. So <laughs> okay, I so refuse Howard County or anywhere around it. Yeah, so. I, I I don't I don't particularly blame you. Okay, so <laughs> before we close out here, Phil. Your number one suspect is George Kelly. The Reverend. The yes. Reverend. Okay. Who is your number one suspect? I like him a lot, but I also like the unsolved serial killer murders. I don't, there's a lot of, like you said, okay. maybe George Kelly is that serial killer. I don't know, but this doesn't seem like someone's first murder. That's for certain. Yeah. In my mind, um, George Kelly is actually number one. And uh, the jilted businessman is number two, um, just because of kind of like, like I said before, he doesn't really have killer tendencies like the reverend has. 
you right. know, the traveling reverend, he has kind of like the, you know, he has the marks of a serial killer. You know, he showed up pretending to be a police officer, kind of looky looing around um, the bloody clothes. He got out of town immediately, you know, pedophile. He's also kind of like put himself into a position of power in order to stalk his prey, that kind of situation. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Phil, if yeah. uh, anybody, if you visited this place or if you want to give us any suspects we left out or suspects you like, where can they uh, contact us? Yeah, if they want to tell us anything about this, or maybe if they, you know, have a theory that kind of doesn't go along with you can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. You know, talk to us about anything. Uh, love to get the emails. Love to hear from people. Another great way to get a hold of us, uh, our Instagram account, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. I will say that uh, last week we got a couple of Instagram messages while I was at the bar. So I'm, a, I'm really sorry that uh, the replies got back to you late. I just don't want to give you, you know, my drunken rant back. <laughs> so, uh Cody and I also have our own Instagram accounts. Mine is SDPodville. Cody, you have one? Yeah, you can follow me at CodyIsAbub. Follow me on there. Talk to me. Do whatever you'd like. Thank you to those who take the time to do that. Uh, the last thing we ask you guys to do is to log on to iTunes. Leave the show a five-star review. Doesn't really matter what you say in there. Just five-star type one word if you want and hit submit. We greatly appreciate everybody who's taking time to do it. If you're a Spotify listener, it's even simpler. You just hit the five star, hit submit. You don't have to type anything. It's real easy peasy. Thank you to everyone who's taking time to do that as well. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this macabre tale. And maybe we cleared up some details for you if you've already heard this. It was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Phil. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.